you are now entering the Podglomerate. Welcome to another episode of Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. The great thing about games is that they are all about making decisions. No other entertainment medium allows for the same level of interactivity. The choices you make define the experience for you. You can win or lose, but even more than that, you can weave a unique story with the decisions you make and the subsequent consequences. Today on the show, we're talking about those decisions from a different perspective, the scientific perspective. My guest today is an expert on the psychology of video games. He looks at the myriad psychological phenomenon that affect the decisions we make in games and about games. All right, here I am with Dr. Jamie Madigan. He is a PhD in psychology. He runs a website, The Psychology of Video Games. Uh, He also has the Psychology of Video Games podcast and the book, Getting Gamers, The Psychology of Video Games and Their Impact on the People Who Play Them. So welcome to the show, Jamie. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. This should be fun. Yeah, I hope so. Obviously, from the title of your various projects, you are the guy to talk to about the psychology of video games. Yeah, I'm not very good at coming up with clever names for websites or podcasts or anything else, but it's great for search engine optimization, and people kind of know what it is based on, on what it says. So, yeah. That makes sense. So what was it about games that led you to to want to analyze them and, and talk about them through the lens of psychology? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the, the two things that I've been very interested in life. I've been, you know, a gamer since I was a kid, and it was a habit that I never dropped, uh, you know, throughout school and into adulthood. And uh, also, obviously, interested in psychology. I have a background in psychology uh a degree in, in industrial organizational psychology and so forth. So, you know, it's just one day back in like late 2009, uh, I had been reading a lot uh, recently about uh, behavioral economics, which is sort of, you know, the use of uh, psychology to understand how people make judgments and how they make decisions. And was just kind of really interested with that and, and really thought it was cool how it was applied to all sorts of different real world problems where in the past, a lot of it just been around very clinical, you know, this is how people make decisions about whether or not to invest in their 401k plans. And this, you know, new bout of books that I was reading was more about like, okay, this is how people uh, make decisions in real life and how they decide like what TV to watch or, you know, what, what, who to date and all those kinds of stuff. And I just thought, you know, that'd be, that's interesting. And somebody could actually take that and, and apply it to video games and, and the larger field of psychology and understanding why games are designed the way they are, uh, why people behave the way they do when they play games, and uh, why games are sold and marketed in the ways that they are. And I thought somebody should really like start a blog about this stuff. And then I realized, hey, I'm, I'm somebody. So <laughs> as just kind of on a lark, I uh, wrote up a few articles uh, and in like late, I think it was late 2009, early 2010, um, you know, grabbed the website, created the website, threw it up there. And here we are uh, all these years later, kind of proved to be uh, of equal interest to a lot of different people. 
uh, especially game developers, but also people who just play games and people who work in, you know, various uh, industries related to games. Uh, so I guess to answer your, you know, your question, it was just sort of what I had always found interesting about psychology, you know, using it to understand human behavior, but applied to this very specific context and this very specific product. And it was just kind of surprising the wealth of information that there was uh, out there and how easy it was for me to come up with a million and one ideas for articles to write. You know, researching and, and writing them was not nearly as difficult as coming up with the ideas, but uh, it was fun. So, I, you know, I kept at it and watched the podcast and and uh, it's still going on today. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I've I've kind of noticed that there's a lot more, there's a lot of people who are popping up who are, you know, kind of using that same story in their little, little area of expertise that, you know, they grew up on games or they, you know, just played a lot of games. It's kind of like a generational thing that now all the gamers are rising to, rising up in academia and rising up in business and stuff. So it's kind of yeah. exciting to see all the new stuff popping up. Yeah. And I was kind of part of that, that first generation of people that grew up with video games that was there since, you know, practically the beginning. And there's a lot of people uh, like me and, and generations since that have grown up and playing games. And now they're in control of things like research agendas and, and deciding who gets what grants to work on research and deciding what classes get taught and deciding what consultants to hire uh, in companies and how to approach that sort of stuff. So yeah, I think you're right. You say that your mission is to popularize how psychology can be used to understand game design and gamers. Mm -hmm. What do everyday players stand to gain by learning more and understanding the psychology of games better? Yeah, so I think a lot of the people that, like I mentioned, that come to the site are game developers and they find a lot of interesting ideas and things to try out when developing games or developing community tools or different approaches to take to, you know, marketing and selling games. And I think those lessons are equally or should be equally interesting and equally applicable to people who don't make games. Uh, you know, just people like myself and, and a lot of others who just are really into games, but they want to think a little bit more deeply about like, well, why are games designed the way they are? And, you know, what you know, keep kind of drilling down and especially look at that through the lens of psychology to understand like why are certain game design tropes so successful and why are certain design decisions uh, made time after time uh, and what are sort of the psychological levers that those things are throwing. So it's just it's just kind of interesting to know just to know it and to know what's going on. And I also have been told and and believe that. The more you understand this sort of stuff, the more you can understand like what it is about games that you like and sort of understand what games you might like or what types of systems you might enjoy engaging in and how to be on the lookout for those. And then, you know, I think there's also something to be said about understanding the, you know, psychological levers that are being thrown and and the tricks and the the ways that games are designed to you know, keep people playing or keep people buying or, or influence their, their purchasing decisions and so forth, you know, knowing about that sort of stuff and being aware of it so that you can come to games on your own terms. And there's nothing wrong, you know, with supporting a free to play game by kicking in some microtransactions. But as long as you understand, you know, like why you're doing it and understand that you're coming at it on your own terms, 
uh, I think that makes everybody happier. Yeah, and it's kind of a, an interesting thing about games is that video games, when they were first being created, you know, the days of the Atari, it was kind of the Wild West of of game design that programmers were just coming up with games and making them and shipping them, you know, just kind of for the fun of it and whatever ideas inspired them. Mm-hmm. But uh, But now there's kind of an industry around the the psychology of games and can you speak to what role that the study of psychology is playing in game design today how do AAA games use mm-hmm. use psychologists or take ideas from psychology and apply it to their game design yeah probably more than most of your listeners suspect uh, one of the things that really surprised me once i started getting into to this and and writing new articles and and you know trying to keep the bog going was that there's there's actually a, a large academic scene of of researchers who are studying these types of things so there's a, a large group of of researchers and academics who are studying you know video games and have been doing so for years but are have been doing more so every year beyond that um, so that's that's really interesting. Uh, to me, the, the types of research that they're putting out and they're starting to branch out into other areas besides the traditional, you know, like media effects of, you know, are violent games bad or are they addictive and into other areas and other topics that are probably more directly of interest to game developers who are wanting to know, understand how to use psychology to, you know, keep people engaged with my game or how do I, you know, get people to play my game and, you know, keep playing instead of moving on to something else. Or how do I make sure that people have a, 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 an enjoyable experience interacting with other players? Or how do I make sure that they feel like they're getting their money's worth out of their purchases and, and in-app purchases and so forth? So you have a lot of people working in the game industry drawing upon that type of research and, and that type of stuff. And yeah, you do have a lot of people from psychology field and uh, other sort of related fields like user experience and uh, testing and uh, research design and data management, those types of fields working in the gaming industry uh, to do everything from you know figuring out the best way to construct uh, user experiences so that people convert and and make in-game purchases to uh, figuring out how do we construct social experiences uh, amongst players so that they're more more likely to get along and exhibit sportsmanship towards each other. You know, you have people working um, like Riot Games, uh, makers of League of Legends, has like an entire player behavior team. You know, who are full of cro- cross-disciplinary folks. Uh, but including some psychologists and communications people and sociologists and so forth who are figuring out like, how do we combat like toxic behavior in video games? And, you know, how do we construct these social situations? And they're drawing on things like social psychology, uh, decades of research showing, you know, how people behave when they're made to feel, you know, de-individuated or anonymous and how, uh, group size and group composition affects, uh, you know, people, whether they act out or whether they get along, uh, that type of stuff has always been sort of some of the most fascinating uh, work that's going on inside of the, the video game industry to me. Um, so, yeah, you got I mean, you got people working at, at all kinds of levels. I, I wish there were more. I hope there continues to be more because I think psychology is, has got a lot to offer. And that's kind of been one of my goals is to act as like a cheerleader for the use of psychology and designing 
games and related experiences. Is there anything in particular that you you want to see see psychologists or psychology play a role in game design that hasn't been done yet? Um, yeah, I mean, lots lots of little things. It seems to be the tagline on most of my blog articles is, this is a great idea. Somebody should actually go do this <laughs> with real data. And I actually do kind of suspect that a lot of people within the games industry may be doing the type of research that I'm talking about and wishing that people would do. Just they, they keep it to themselves because it's a trade secret or... Um, their corporate overlords don't want them, you know, sharing that information or exposing what they're doing, you know, if they're doing testing and, and taking measures, that type of stuff. I kind of wish that the the field of psychology and games in general would move more, move away from or, or expand beyond sort of the hot button topics like violence and games and addiction and <clears throat> uh, harassment and those types of things, which are obviously you know, important topics, and I'm glad they're being studied, but there's like all these other types of questions like, you know, how do people behave differently when they're using in-game currency to make purchases versus using cash or, or a credit card account or something like that? You know, there's all this kind of uh, research on consumer behavior and people using uh, payment methods that are more or less transparent and that uh, are delayed in time from when you make the purchase and you get the thing that you that you paid for and you have to actually give up your money and sort of what that does to people in terms of impulse purchases. And that's like one example of an area where I think there's some really interesting research uh, that could be go- that could be done or if it is being done that could be shared and, and communicated with the wider world. You know, like how does this affect people's behaviors when they when they make those types of purchases and how does it affect how can you best frame those types of decisions and those types of purchases so that people feel the most satisfied with with their decisions and their purchases so that they get you know the most enjoyment out of the game versus you know what are some of the things you want to avoid to make it feel like make people that might make people feel like they've been taken advantage of or that they're you know a sucker that they're wasting their money because um, a lot of times it just can really depend on how a situation is framed and how it's described <clears throat> that can affect how people form judgments around it and how they feel about it. Uh, so, you know, anything that can do to, to sort of maximize enjoyment uh, along those lines, I think would be great. In your work, you interview and collect information from all sorts of different psychologists who are working, you know, in the psychology world or in the game design world. But you also come up with kind of your your own theories and observations about directions that psychology can go. And I, I really appreciate your your attention to the the really small details that, you know, for <laughs> on the outside, maybe they seem like they're not important or they don't really, you know, why would you spend time doing it? But you really highlight how they can reveal some interesting and powerful effects from psychology. So I brought just just a couple of the ones that stood out to me that you wrote about of of kind of little moments that reflect how a lot of gamers how a lot of gamers feel and the effects that make them react in a certain way that is kind of surprising. First, can you tell me tell me a little bit about the Zyg- Zygarnik effect? Zygarnik, yeah. Zygarnik effect and quest logs. 
Yeah. So this was one of those those types of situations where a lot of times when I want you know to to write something, I'll my starting point will be like an observation about my own gaming habits or or what I see happening with other people. I, I'd actually written about the Zagarnik effect before, but. Uh, the most recent time that I wrote about it, it was when I was playing through Diablo 3 and doing one of their season events. So if anybody's not familiar with the Diablo 3 seasons, they basically let you like start from pretty much from scratch with a level one character. And then you uh, in the over the course of the season, you build that character up and they have all of these little uh, like quests and objectives for you to do. So you may, you know, ultimately be trying to. Uh, run a certain dungeon in a certain period of time or buy a high-level item from a vendor or, or whatever it is. And in fact, it kind of dawned on me that the, the Diablo 3 seasons are just giant quest logs. They're just giant checklists of things for you to do. Uh, and in order to compete the season and then however many of them you do, you get rewards to go with them, like you know items and bragging rights and little cosmetic things uh, for your character. And uh, I was deep into, you know, playing that season of Diablo uh, late last year and kind of noticed that that it had a lot to do with something that I'd read about before called the Zagarnik effect, which comes from the old story of a a Russian psychologist named Bulma Zagarnik, who uh, was working in Austria. Uh, They're teaching and doing research. And she noticed uh, the the perhaps apocryphal story goes, you know, no one is quite sure if this is true, but the story goes that she and some colleagues were out uh, to lunch at a, at a restaurant, at a cafe. And she noticed that the waiters who were going around were able to remember the orders of everybody at the table, even if it was a large group of people. The waiters were able to remember those orders perfectly and were able to deliver the food perfectly. But then after the food had been delivered... The waiters had no memory, no recall of who ordered what or, uh, you know, what they had asked for or any of that type of stuff. But while the process was still going on of them getting their food, the waiters were able to hold it in memory. So Zagarnik and some of her colleagues went back, you know, to the lab and started doing experiments with people, uh, you know, solving puzzles or, or doing certain tasks. And then they some of them they would like interrupt and keep them from completing that task. And then... Uh, would quiz them on their knowledge or their memory about what was going on sometime later, you know, the nature of the tasks and so forth. And they found that people remember more about a task when it's left incomplete. And it sort of tends to weigh on their mind and they want to uh, go back and complete the task. And, and it's easier for them to recall from memory things about the activities relative to people who were doing the same exact tasks, but were just allowed to complete them and move on to something else. So the, you know, the idea of the Zagarnik effect, which is what it came to be known, you know, entered into the psychology lexicon and there's been a lot of other additional research on it. And it's, it's something that's held up pretty well. And you see it used in video games all the time in Diablo three season events, which are just giant checklists of, t- of, of challenges that you, you know, can start and it shows you how much progress you've made towards each one and the ones that you've started you tend to remember more about or tend to think more about while you're playing or even when you're not playing. You see this sort of thing show up in like uh, 
role-playing game design all the time, you know, like multi massively multiplayer online games or trying to collect so many Gortusk livers, you know, you're not going to, if you need 14 Gortusk livers, you're not going to stop at 13, right? You're, you're going right. to keep going until you get everything that you need. And I find that this is the way I play those types of games a lot as well, is that I will not like leave an area if I've got incomplete quests in my log that I've, that I've started uh, that I've been made to feel like I've started progress on. Um, th- I'll think about those things and I'll get much greater sense of satisfaction from from checking them off uh, before I move on to something else. So it's a, an example of a, of, of a psychological phenomenon that pretty neatly explains uh, game design that you keep seeing over and over again. What interested me about that was I've had that experience of having just like a a burning desire to finish a quest or clear up my quest log. And it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't played games before <laughs> right. uh, what, that, what that drive is. But it turns out that, you know, I'm not crazy. There's a psychological, a known psychological phenomenon at work. Yeah, and I think it's the same thing that happens when people do uh, checklists or to-do lists, you know, for work or for school is that that's that's why those types of checklists and to-do lists work is because that once you've committed to doing something or you feel like you've started progress on, you know, doing some task at work or or some school project or whatever it is, uh, you're more likely to stick with it. And that's why people keep turning back to those tools because they they work better than alternatives do. And the other one I wanted uh, to hear you talk about was uh, about your article called Decision Making Under Arousal mm-hmm. about games. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So that that's a, that's an oldie. You dug way back into the archives for that one. That was one of the, the first articles that I that I wrote. And it was uh, came straight from one of the books I was reading about behavioral economics. <clears throat> but it's, it's sort of a, a truism in psychology that we're limited by our, our mental power our, our, our you know, our mental juice. Like we don't have the attention to spare to every single thing that comes into our perception. And when we make decisions uh, we've got to kind of prioritize and, and use our mental resources, like our, our attention and our memory and our effort uh, smartly. And we've developed all these sorts of mental shortcuts that we use. And that's where all this talk about biases and heuristics come from and how you can sort of, you know, be tricked into thinking things that are irrational or illogical. The article you're talking about uh, kind of ties into that because it looks at the just one more turn or just one more level experience that I think most gamers have had, right? Where you're you're playing something that you're into and there comes a time when it's getting late or you've got something else to do. You know, you need to get some sleep. You need to run some errands, you need to go spend time with your kids or whatever it is. But instead of making, you know, the decision that you know you should, you end up just playing like one more round or let me have one more run at this boss or uh, do one more level or one more time trial or whatever it is. And I think part of the reason that we do that is that when we are uh, aroused and, and psychologists use the term aroused in a very generic sense, you know, most people think like sexual arousal, but 
uh, in psychology speak, aroused just sort of means like worked up. It just means like excited and indications that you're aroused might be, you know, heightened heartbeat, uh, heightened, you know, uh, skin galvanization or, uh, you know, those types of things, increased breathing and so forth. And that can be for a variety of different reasons. But, you know, some of the best experiences that we have with games get us in that state of arousal where we're just kind of we're you're physically aroused and we're excited and we're having a good time. And there was an interesting uh, study that I had read about that sort of made me think of this idea, even though it wasn't about video games. Um, but it was it was kind of an interesting study because essentially what these these two guys, I think it was Dan Ariely, who is a professor at Duke University and George Lowenstein, uh, who's another uh, researcher in that area. Um, what they did is they they got a bunch of male participants and they gave them laptops, and on the laptops was a lot of pornography. Um, so these were college students. I imagine this was like the world's easiest study to recruit for because they, they handed these guys uh, laptops full of pornography and said, and we'll pay you <laughs> to like do this, uh, to like browse this stuff. So what the guys did, uh, and they were all guys in this particular study, they would look at the the pornography on, on the laptops and then sort of at the height of their arousal. And in this case, I actually do mean sexual arousal, you know, at the height of their arousal, they would be asked questions that, that they normally would require some sort of uh, judgment on their part, or maybe some restraint on their part to say, uh, this is how it would behave in this situation. So it was, you know, the type of stuff, like if I can find an example uh, questions are like, would you encourage your date to drink more to increase the chance that she would have sex with you? Or, you know, would you use birth control uh, if you were hooking up with somebody? Those types of things. And then a bunch of other types of questions as well. And they found, of course, that when people were most uh, aroused, most worked up, they would, you know, answer questions like, yeah, I would I would do that risky thing. I would engage in that either that risky behavior or that that morally ambiguous or, or straight up morally uh, wrong type of behavior. And the reason is that we rely on, you know, our mental resources to keep our impulses in line, you know, to do the sorts of stuff uh, to resist temptation, to make those types of judgments, to, to think about well, whoa, what might I have to deal with tomorrow if I give in to this temptation right now? And that takes mental energy and it takes mental resources. But uh, when you're in a state of arousal of any kind, you know, physiological arousal, psychological arousal, then you're robbed of those mental resources. And the idea in the article that I had was, well, this can this type of thing can apply to video games as well when they get us worked up, when they get us excited, and then just playing games can be very mentally demanding, right? Certain types of games that sort of eat up those mental resources. And so when you have to, uh, in the face of that, make a decision about, well, should I go to bed or should I go do this other thing that I need to do? If those mental resources have been depleted by the act of playing the game or getting worked up or, or any other reason, then we're less likely to make uh, that call that requires some sort of restraint and tamping down of our emotional state or or resisting temptation. Yeah, so that's that's really fascinating. You know, I've heard a lot of people have 
kind of had the exact same phenomenon in their life that they they need to study, but they end up playing League of Legends until, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have trouble saying no to the next match, the next thing. And I know that, you know, I've gone through periods in my life where I was making really bad <laughs> decisions when it came to video games. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not atypical in that regard. So, you know, it's really interesting to me that one thing that I've come to realize is that video games are something that there's not a lot of social wisdom about it. Uh, you know, there's there's no warning from, you know, ages past about how <laughs> video games can trick you into not doing your homework, you know. No so, conventional folk wisdom, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So when they kind of came on the scene, I feel like society wasn't really prepared for it. And so a lot of people were like me and they they had these psychological phenomenon occur to them and, you know, not really understand it. So that's one thing that I really appreciate about what you do is that you you look at the facts, you talk to people or come up with your own connections and you explain what you think and the connections you make. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah, I try to make sure that all the stuff that I write about or talk about uh, is at least grounded, at least the idea is grounded in some sort of, of research, usually from like a, a refereed, you know, peer-reviewed journal in psychology or some neighboring field. Uh, And, you know, I'll I'll include references for all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, sort of early on, I decided that there are a a lot of blogs and podcasts now out there where people are just sort of talking about their experiences with games or whether I like this game or not. And, and, And those are great. A lot of those are very good. But one of the things that I wanted, you know, to do to find my own niche is it's like, well, what does the research say, you know, and sort of include that angle in, in all the pieces that I do. And sometimes I do wander off script and I do conjecture and, and just think, well, I wonder if, or this sort of makes me think that if, but you know, that's sort of the fun. And at least the, the actual research and the actual sciences is in there somewhere, even if it's only a jumping off point. Yeah. And it's, it's great that you are in your book and in your podcast and everything you you've compiled all this, factual-based or research-based knowledge. There's probably been decades worth of uh, parenting and education books that probably talk about video games, but you mm-hmm. know they're probably based on theories and not based on what you're talking about, peer-reviewed journals and, and things like that. They're probably all just based on some observations and anecdotes and things right. like that. Either that or they're based on... Um previous research and things like television, you know, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll look at like, okay, the, the effects of playing a lot of video games, what can we take from research that's been done on watching a lot of television or watching a lot of movies or playing a lot of sports even. Um, but, you know, video games are, are different from all those types of things and we engage with them differently and there's they're social experiences in ways that watching television mostly is not, uh, for example. So there's a lot of new research that's going on. And, you know, in the last few years, you are starting to see books that come out to say like, okay, here's what the research says about this sort of stuff. Those exist alongside, you know, the opinion pieces and the, this is my personal experience type of things, which, you know, have their own value as well. But I myself wouldn't more interested in knowing like what scientific research says about all this sort of stuff. And then marrying that with personal experiences. 
In your work with collecting all this information and about the psychology of video games, was there anything that that you read about that particularly surprised you or maybe you just find really interesting to talk about? So I don't know if there's anything that, that has really surprised me. I think some of the the most interesting research and the most interesting application of research is, uh, like I was uh, talking about before, the, the player behavior team at Riot Games, uh, like working mostly on League of Legends. And <clears throat> I think they've had some interventions that were more successful than others, but I'm just really fascinated and interested by the very sort of scientific approach that they take where they're going to be conducting studies and they're going to be, uh, you know, randomly assigning people to groups and then, and doing an intervention and then seeing how those groups differ on whatever variable it is that they're interested. Uh, you know, whether it's a uh, number of verbal uh, abuse or complaints against players or number of, you know, pro sportsmanship like behaviors uh, or number of games played or retention rate or those types of things. You know, I remember when I first kind of came across that and I just thought like, well, there it is. There's this thing that I, I kept saying wish existed and it does. And these people are doing it. Uh, and I, I think that that's great. So that that was definitely one surprise to see that. And then I think also just generally kind of surprised to once I started knowing where to look to see the number of people who are doing almost pure academic research uh, on this topic, you know, where they're still talking about games, but they're talking about them in, in labs and they're working in universities and research labs and uh, publishing, you know, research in peer reviewed journals. And there was more of it out there than I realized there was because I, I simply wasn't looking for it and it wasn't in my usual wheelhouses. When you play games, do you, have you noticed <laughs> in yourself times that you've caught yourself, you know, falling for, you know, a psychological phenomenon or a bias that you didn't expect until you started talking about it and analyzing it? Yeah, I get this question a lot. <laughs> and, you know, despite despite what I said about, you know, being able to come at games in your own terms and understanding them, which, you know, I think is true, I still fall prey to some of the, the oldest tricks in the book and some of the things that I've written about. You know, I just recently... Uh, was playing uh, Fire Emblem Heroes on on my phone, which is the the iOS Fire Emblem game. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a free to play game, so you know it's free to download, and then you download you get like random heroes, and you can buy resources to speed things up or or get additional uh, playtime and so forth. And I got really deeply into this game and into the whole mechanic of you know, playing and and getting these little orbs so that I could then like draw additional heroes and hoping that I get like a five star hero this time. And it's all just, you know, random chance. And it's all just, you know, making feel like you are due, you know, to get something good. And maybe there is something there where like if you haven't gotten a really good hero in a long time, it'll sort of give you one out of pity <laughs> for free. Um, but you know, I just, I remember thinking like, okay, I didn't get one last time I'm due when in fact it should be like a completely random event or a mostly random event. And that, for example, the things that I, you know, the, the heroes that I drew or the luck that I had last time should have no bearing on the luck that I'm having now. It's something called the gambler's fallacy that, you know, mm -hmm. phenomenon that's been studied 
extensively in the gambling literature and elsewhere. And I was falling prey to it. And I, and I was thinking uh, very much along those lines. And I remember sort of stepping back and saying like, oh, <laughs> I should, you know, physician heal thyself kind of moment for me. Uh, but then I thought, eh, whatever, I'm having fun. <laughs> it's not costing me much to play this game. And so who cares if, you know, that psychological trick is in play. Uh, I know about it and I know that I'm having fun. So, you know, I just rolled with it. Yeah, I remember reading, I don't remember if it was your site or somewhere else, there was a GDC talk about how people have a really bad perception of randomness is and what chance really mm-hmm. looks like. And so they expect things to play out a certain way. I think the example was in civilization, you expect that if you if you lose a battle, you're more likely to win the next one and so on. And so yeah. when players don't see that, they have a negative reaction and you know they get frustrated when in reality it's completely perfectly fair and even with the odds literally displayed on the screen in front of them <laughs> they still they still don't think it's fair if they lose twice in a row you know yeah. that seems unlikely yeah the, the the classic example is that if you if you flip a coin like four times and it comes up heads 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 and you ask somebody what is the chance that the next coin flip will be tails they'll say almost certainly cuz like you you're due for a tails you've gotten four heads in a row the next one's almost surely going to be a tails when in fact each coin flip is an independent event each coin flip has 50/50 chance and with only four or five flips it's entirely possible that you would get four heads uh in a row uh, and maybe a fifth one um but yeah the same sort of thing then happens with games that have random elements like civilization or or uh, that type of thing where no, the last three battles you you fought, you lost. You know the random number generator was not on your side, and it may or may not be this time, but it's not going to have anything to do with what it did before. In that talk, they mentioned how because of that expectation, they had to change the odds of the game to be pseudo random and mm. to start matching what players' ex- expectations were. So that was a really interesting application of psychology that you may look at a game and think, oh, well, it's a bunch of numbers. What I see is what I get, when in reality, the game designer might be applying psychology even to numbers and chance, uh, Mm -hmm. which you wouldn't think uh, has anything to do with the human brain, but it certainly does. That's a great example. Yeah. So what's what's on the horizon for you? What are you what are you working on these days? Uh, I'm not sure. I I started a new day job recently that has uh, had me pretty busy, so I, I am just keeping the the blog and the podcast going along and on a regular schedule. Uh, the book has been out for a while now, and I have kind of started kicking around ideas for a, a potential uh, follow-up uh, in a slightly different direction, but don't really have anything worked out there. Uh, I'm sure my, my publisher would appreciate it if I did that, but you know, it, it's tough to find time in the day to play all these great video games and then write about them and talk about them. Uh, at the same time. Uh, so I don't have any big projects uh, on the way other than, you know, just keeping the website and the podcast going. Okay. So how can interested listeners find out more about you and follow your work? Uh, psychologyofgames.com is definitely the place to go. Uh, it's the URL just 
just like I said it. And there you can also find links uh, very easily to follow me on Twitter. I have a Facebook page um, where I always post on both of those places whenever I have any new content go up. Uh, You can find all the back episodes of the podcast uh, to listen to and and figure out how to subscribe there. It's called the Psychology of Games podcast if you want to search for it wherever you normally get podcasts. And uh, I've got literally hundreds of articles at this point uh, in the archives uh, that people can check out. And then also prominently displayed at psychologygames.com are links about uh, the book, Getting Gamers. And you can always uh, follow those links or just go to Amazon or or wherever you buy books online and find it there. Yeah, and I definitely advise listeners who are interested in digging a little bit deeper into these interesting psychology topics. Dr. Madigan does a great job of bringing out the facts and going into the research, but still keeping it relatable and readable or listenable, as the case may be. (laughs) Um, So I highly recommend it. That always sounds weird, Dr. Madigan. The only people that I make call me Dr. Madigan are my kids. And so <laughs> it always sounds strange when somebody else says it. But I got the piece of paper around here somewhere. Yeah. Well, uh, Jamie, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. This was fun. I'm glad to be on, and thanks for having me. There you have it. I was only able to scratch the surface of all the great work Jamie has done. Like I mentioned in the interview, I think that a lot of people don't have good access to quality information about the psychology of games, so they may be frustrated by their own gaming habits and behaviors. So Jamie's data-driven approach is extremely valuable. There's your intelligence boost for the week. You're not going to want to miss next week's episode where I talk with Travis Erickson about child's play and harnessing gaming enthusiasm for charity. So subscribe so you don't forget. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.